in the back, we have a uh, sign-up sheet. We're going to be offering a new members course class. And uh, its uh, focus is to allow people to kind of get to know us a little bit, what we're about, what we uh, believe. Uh, if you're interested in knowing about the church, uh, I encourage you to sign up for it. It'll give some information. We got a, uh, an excellent teacher to, to teach it, um, very capable, and um, knows things that, that I don't know. So, I mean, it, you're in good hands with him. Uh, if you would, please, uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll be reading from verses 15 to verse 28. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the, his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such that has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if then they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now as we meditate on this text that uh, your spirit would illumine our minds, help us understand, not just to have some more facts, but to apply your word so that we can become more like Christ and less like ourselves. Father, we know that's your will, that we become holy as you are holy. And I pray that um, this text will we'll meditate it on it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday we had that uh, fellowship and it was a lot of fun. Had some people uh, grilling. We had some uh, volleyball games and a lot of people just sitting around and talking. Uh, but back in 1999, uh, I was up in Messina, New York. It's way up there on the St. Lawrence River. Uh, and uh, this church was having, it was an old church, this church was having a, a tent meeting. Uh, it was a tent revival. And uh, they had a perfectly good chapel, but for some reason they decided to put a, a tent up beside uh, the building and have the meetings there. I don't know if it made things more special or, you know, if there was a, something special that happened if you met in the tent instead of the, uh, 
the chapel area, but there was a guy there, and uh, he was preaching uh, about prophecy and encouraging people in, in prophecy. And, of course, uh, in 1999, the big topic of event was Y2K, right? How computers were enabled to uh, move from 1999 to, to 2000. And it was going to cause a collapse, a collapse of the banking system, a collapse of the government, uh, a collapse of life as we know it. You remember that? It was 21 years ago. Uh, when everything came to a standstill, remember? Uh, and he, this guy, this guy was a very studious man. He had studied scriptures and he'd gone forward and backward and, and so forth. And he had determined, based on looking at the... Uh, the festivals and uh, the Jewish festivals and certain timing and event and everything going to happen that Christ was going to return in October of 2000. Uh, which um, I'm not sure if, if if that still plays out. I don't I don't know if that really happened. Um, I got I got left behind and, and so did y'all and. Uh, we're a couple years past the tribulation, which we survived that too. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, he, he understood the purpose behind the text. He used it as a, a road map. And, and of course, uh, one thing that he did was kind of pressure people to, um, to come forward because October of 2000 was coming, and you better be ready. Now, the text does encourage us to be ready. But uh, remember... The disciples had three questions for Jesus. And in those three questions, one was, when will this happen? Then the other one was the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age. He doesn't answer the when part. He answers the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age. That's what he is answering here. Now, as we seek to interpret the Bible, we should uh, seek to look at the author's intent. What, what did the author want to communicate? Uh, because uh, if we don't look to seek what the author is intending to mean, we'll, we'll come up with all types of stuff. And, and to do that, we must interpret the text uh, literally, grammatically, contextually, historically. Now, uh, you can, uh, we could assume for a moment that uh, my wife sends me to the store to, um, to get a 20-ounce can of uh, crushed tomatoes. And so I go to the store, and uh, I see the crushed tomato can, but... I think that uh, really what she wants is a pizza. I mean, what else are you going to do with crushed tomato, right? And so I come back with a pizza, and I say, voila, there you go. And she's like, I was going to make spaghetti and meatballs, you know, I don't know. Um, that, that's not a literal interpretation. That, that's adding my thoughts into her little grocery list. Uh, and that, that causes problems. Uh, we looked at uh, a, a proper cutting technique last week, and the proper cutting technique ensures that you don't add body parts to what you're cutting, and it uh, ensures that you have a consistent product at the end. Also, in biblical interpretation, you should not include your thoughts, your ideas into the text. You need to pull out what the text, the text informs you. You, you don't inform the text. This is God's revealed word. It, it informs you, so you pull out, and, and you should have it consistent. Now, how do you make a consistent interpretation using a literal, grammatical, contextual, historical interpretation? You start by making observations. You, you make a lot of observations. You look, you look very carefully. 
and then you come up with an interpretation. Not many interpretations, an interpretation of the text, because the author has an intended meaning in what he's written. And from that interpretation, then you have a limited amount of application. You can't go just hog wild with the applications. You have to have based on whatever you've interpreted. Now, the context that we're in here is that Jesus has been offering the kingdom. That, that's been the point. He's been offering the kingdom. Uh, this is not a, a spiritual kingdom. It's not a kingdom in, in your heart type deal uh, because uh, they were anticipating. When you look in the Old Testament, when God told uh, David that he was going to build a house, he was, they weren't thinking about a spiritual house. No, they, uh, he understood that someone was going to be sitting on his throne, that someone was going to be ruling. They were anticipating a king that would set up a, a rule and they would rule all the nations. There would be peace. It wasn't, it wasn't a moral kingdom. It wasn't a, a, a religious type kingdom. It was a literal kingdom, and he's presented this, and the rulers, the, the people in charge, have rejected that. They didn't like what Jesus had to offer. He offered them the kingdom, they rejected the king, and they rejected his kingdom. It's in this context that the people are crying out that this is the son of David. And uh, the one who is speaking is Jesus, the audience is his disciples, and they want to know specifically, when is this temple going to be destroyed? Because in this kingdom, this Davidic kingdom, it seems really strange that there could possibly be the Davidic kingdom, but the temple destroyed. How, how could that happen? So he, they want to know this, and that's what they're asking questions about. What we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must stop finding hope in false Christ and trust God, who sovereignly uses pain and suffering to make us ready for Christ. As you listen to that, you're probably thinking, I don't like pain and suffering. So I'm already thinking I'm not going to like this sermon very much. Uh, but Christ uh, offers us, uh, we get along in his plan. He uses pain and suffering in our life. It, there is the temptation to go towards false Christ, to find something else. But God will use pain and suffering in our lives to get us ready for Christ. And, and we see that in a couple different ways. The first is that God uses rebellion. God uses rebellion. We see that in verse 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Up to this point, what we've seen in verses 1 through 14 have been a sequence of future tense verbs. And not only future tense verbs, but also the adverb of then, when put with the future tense verbs, it has this sequential aspect of happening in the future. Uh, a sequence of, uh, you could call it a future tense narrative per se, uh, where things are happening in the future. Now, we could interpret this being future from the point of Jesus, because we know that Rome came in the year 70 and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And so we could be seeing this as something maybe future from the point of view of Jesus, but from our point of view, all this stuff has taken place. Or at the very least, we could say all of it has taken place and there is still a lot of persecution going on now. And, and some people have interpreted this text that this is all historical. Uh, things that are future from the point of Jesus, but for us it's all historical. And, and there are many Christians now living in persecution. There are many Christians who, uh, who have church meeting in, in an apartment building, uh, in their home, and uh, of course they, uh, they take a cake 
And if uh, authorities come in and ask what's going on, they say they're celebrating a birthday, you know, the birthday of Jesus, you know, um, and that's what they do. It's, they have to make up a story each time. Uh, um, but there is a persecution going on, so some interpret this all past tense. Uh, but there's a problem if we're going to make observations of this text that kind of puts all this in jeopardy of it just being past tense for us is that it says, uh, see the abomination of desolation. Something is going to happen that's going to cause something that's holy and usable for God to be desolate, to not be used at all. It's going to be an abomination. It's going to be impure, not, not usable for God's purpose. And you could say, well, well that happened with, with uh, Rome coming in and, and destroying the temple. You can't offer sacrifices now. In fact, there's a, a big mosque there where the temple should be. You can't go in there and offer sacrifices to the Lord. So right now you can say, well, that has happened. But then Jesus goes a step further and says uh, he anchors what he's saying uh, to the prophet Daniel. And so now that causes uh, an issue. Because now we have to go back and say, well, what did the prophet Daniel talk about? What, what was going on there? Daniel was... Um, he was from Judah, from Jerusalem, and uh, from the noble family. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and uh, conquered the city. And in the year 605, he took a lot of the young men to uh, Babylon. There, Daniel got trained to be a government official. His, his career path was a, a government official, even though God revealed things to him. Uh, we would know him as a prophet, but uh, the way that the Israel sees him is that his career was a, uh, a government official. And uh, in chapter 9 is where we see this, uh, this abomination of desolation happen. In Daniel chapter 9, you see that uh, there's a marker of time of uh, the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarius. He, uh, Daniel, is praying to the Lord. On one side, he is confessing God's covenantal love for them. How God loves them and is merciful and gracious towards them. On the other side, God, uh, Daniel is confessing uh, his sin, and not only his sin, but the sin of his people, how they're unfaithful to God, how they do not go after him, how uh, even though he over and over gives grace, they keep on rejecting him. And, and it's a, an amazing prayer that he gives. And at that time, while he's praying, the angel Gabriel comes to him. Because Daniel has a specific prayer request. He wants to know when the fulfillment of uh, the Jeremiah prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 25, 11 through 12, it talks about that the land uh, will be in desolation and that the Israel will be in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, Daniel has the book of Jeremiah. He's read it. He understands that the seven-year period there's going to be a seven-year period. He wants to know when will the 70-year period end. When's the start of it? When's the end? He's praying. He wants to know an answer for this. He's confessing his sins, the sins of the people. He's talking about how great God is. And that's when the angel Gabriel comes. And we see that in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Gabriel has a message for him. And he starts to share with him that uh, there's going to be some 70 weeks. Now, these 70 weeks are different from Jeremiah's 70 years. The 70 years are sequential years. 
Daniel's 70 weeks is a certain amount of time period where it's not a week of seven days, but they're of years. And there's going to be something that happens. In verse 24 it says, The 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, uh, that's uh, Israel, for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Uh, so there's these 70 weeks, and its purpose for these 70 weeks, or this time period, is that it's going to cause these things. Now, we might look at this list of things that it's going to accomplish, the 70 weeks, and say, well, uh, some of these things have already happened. Uh, to make an end of sin, well, to make atonement for iniquity, that happened at the cross when Christ died for our sins. There was nothing we could do for ourselves to save us, but uh, God in His mercy sent His Son to die for us, and at that moment of, of dying for us, it put an end to sin. And we could say, we could argue that. Uh, but there's something here that's lacking, which is this, um, to bring everlasting righteousness or justice. Uh, do we live in an everlasting righteous society? People should be going like, no, we don't. <laughs> we do not. There's a lot of injustice, unrighteousness happening all around us, everywhere. So this has not happened yet. From our point of view, this is not accomplished yet. And in this time period, there's going to be first the 62 weeks, and then uh, the seven weeks, and then there's going to be this last week. And it says in verse uh, 27, And he will make a firm covenant, and the many for one week, that's that last week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offering, and the wing, uh, the wing of abomination will come, one who makes desolate, even until uh, a complete destruction, and that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So there's still this one week that's lacking. It's sometime in the future. Daniel's anticipating this, that there's going to be this week that's going to come, everything's going to be desolate, uh, but at the end of these 70 weeks, there's going to be this eternal justice, this eternal righteousness. Now we go back to Matthew. And Matthew, uh, Jesus has anchored all this stuff around this prophecy of Daniel, something that will happen. Now, uh, we can look around and say, obviously, there's not eternal righteousness and justice happening in our earth. So this has to be future. This is not something that has already happened. We're still anticipating. We're still waiting for this to come about. Here in this, we see a couple of things that I think could be applicable to us. Going back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. The first is that God knows that there will be rebellion. God knows. Here, he's anticipating. It's, it's part of his plan. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He's like... I really thought they were going to follow me this time. He, he understands that people are going to reject him. And not only reject him, but make the place that's holy to be desolate, not usable. So God knows that there's going to be rebellion. And the other thing that we see is that God works his plan out on his timing. God is working out his plan out on his timing. Many of us want God to work out 
on our timing, right? Uh, if God could just get a, get a hold of our program and see when things are supposed to start and when things are supposed to finish, uh, things would be a lot better, wouldn't they not? We, we'd be quite happy. But since the year way back when he gave Daniel this prophecy, God has been working out a plan sovereignly. People have come and people have gone, and God continues to work out his plan. And in this plan that he's working out, he is patient and gracious, giving people opportunity to repent, to turn to him. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter how many years you give some individuals, they will continually reject God. They will reject Christ. They will have nothing to do with him. God knows that there's this rebellion, and he's still patient. He doesn't just wipe everybody off. And that's, I think, an amazing thing to think about in God's character and his person and who he is, that he has a timing, and he allows us to be actively working during that timing for his honor and for his glory. Now, we see that God knows that there's rebellion. The other thing that we see is that God uses suffering. God uses suffering in our life. And that's what we see in verses 16 through uh, verse 22. God uses suffering. If you see in these verses, there's this, um, uh, it says in uh, verse 16, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and whoever is in the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Uh, I, I think uh, this is just uh, my personal thing. I think that's written more uh, for women. Uh, I can just leave the house without a problem. My wife has to pick up things. She's like, what if a plumber has to come in here? I don't want them to see the house all messy. So I think that's more gear. That's just my personal note. I'm giving that free. There's, there's no charge. Uh, that, uh, leave the house a mess. Who cares? He said, don't, don't go back in the house. Don't. Run. And it says, uh, furthermore, uh, Pray that your flight is not uh, be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, these references of Judea, these references of Sabbath, the reference of Daniel, all the context of the audience is Israel. Don't, don't put First Baptist Church of Jerusalem here. Don't, don't do that. You'll mess up the interpretation. All this is talking and geared towards Israel. And uh, verse 20, make sure that uh, uh, the verse 19 where it talks about if Women are pregnant or nursing. Uh, verse 20, the flight is not in winter or Sabbath. Uh, for there will be a great tribulation. Now, we uh, tend to think of tribulation, of hardship, and, and usually we think our generation, what we go through is the worst. And just to be very, very honest, my plight is worse than all of your plights together. That's how we tend to think. I am going through the worst possible, and this is the worst generation ever. And, and everything is calamity, and, but there's going to be a very great, great tribulation, it says. And, and to put it into perspective, to understand it, it says, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. That's incredible to think about. You're telling me that there's going to be a tribulation much worse than the flood? There, there's going to be calamity much worse than uh, when God judged Israel at different times? You look through the book of uh, Judges, uh, when he judged Israel out in the desert, and the ground opened up and several thousand died. 
worse than anything of that, worse than any of the storms, worse than anything that we have experienced. There's going to be a great tribulation, not since the beginning of the world, and uh, since uh, nor ever will. So this one week, this one week of Daniel's 70 weeks will be worse than anything ever experienced. Now we can look back through time and uh, we can try to look at a seven-year period and try to determine what that would be and we won't see anything like this. That's worse than anything else. And Jesus is telling them this will happen. And and not only will it happen, but... uh, Verse 22, unless those days have been cut short. Now, what does it mean that a day is cut short? Does that mean that during this time period, uh, days instead of being 24-hour days, they're going to be 18-hour days, and that way people are going to be able to survive it? It, No, the idea is that uh, short means that it will come to an end. There's going to be this great, great suffering, but eventually... It has an, an end date. It does, it's not going to just continue going on and on and on and on. And it says that uh, we'll cut, be cut short to save, uh, or no life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, who are the elect in this text? Uh, some of us might want to run to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus, and he's talking about how Uh, They have been chosen, and it's the word elected, uh, before the foundation of the earth. And so you might want to say, well, the elect here are are the saved. That unless, uh, you know, God had cut the days short, the saved will not be be saved, how some might interpret it. I, I think that if you decide to interpret it in that way, you're kind of adding an interpretation to the word elect that's divorced from its context. Context always determines the meaning of words. You can't just grab meanings from other passages and throw it into the one passage. That doesn't make sense at all. In this context, who would be the elect? Well, it's talking about Daniel's prophecy. Jesus is talking to the disciples, talking about the temple. They're talking about Judea. The, The context would be Israel, who God has chosen. God is dealing with Israel specifically during this time period to to make them turn to God. He's going to use suffering and calamity in their life to have them turn to Him, to save them. Then verse, um, we, we see if we're going to apply this, that there's no escaping this type of tribulation. There's not going to be any escaping. In fact, the point of Jesus telling them to run to the mountains, to to not go back into the house, uh, it it talks of an imminent destruction, an imminent calamity that will come about. There's no way to really escape it. There's no way to plan for this. no way to develop a strategy to survive this time period. And it's going to be all over the place. Now, uh, I was listening on the radio And uh, this guy, he was a financial advisor, and he was talking about how difficult times were coming ahead of us. And therefore, we should do something. He said, you need to uh, uh, have uh, 15 months of saved expenses. So if if your expense in a month is $1,000, you need to have $15,000. And uh, he said that you need to have three months of liquid assets. And I was like, does that mean Gatorade and water, or is that like Coke? I'm I'm not sure 
how much of that we should have. And I think I'm already at a failure because I'm not sure how much of that liquid assets I need. And then he says you need a, a month of cash. You need to put it in a, uh, a, a fireproof box in your house. And then you also need a, 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 a go-to bag, but don't put it in your house because they might come and grab you from your house. You need to kind of have it in the woods hidden, and you need to have some gold coins in that go-to bag. I'm like, who's going to accept gold? Like, and the guy was making this whole case. And then at the end, he had this 1-800 number that you could call to get the, the full plan of how to survive an, an economic downturn. There's no plan. There's not three easy steps to survive this, this time. There's, there's not do these things and you'll coast through. Now, I can guarantee you that there were people that called him. I, I can guarantee you. And you say, there's nobody that's going to call this guy. I'm telling you, there, how do I know? Because people went crazy over toilet paper last year. <laughs> they said, the world might not have toilet paper, but I will. I will survive this. And there's people that were listening to that guy and saying, I am somehow going to survive this. There's no surviving it. It's going to be worldwide, and it's going to be like something that you've never seen before. And God will use this suffering to save his, his nation, Israel. Now, in seeing this, I want to apply how God is acting graciously to his elect here to also to us. And that's the application. I'm understanding the elect to be Israel. But just as God loves Israel, he loves us. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, it talks about Christ, and it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's not going to put out a burning wick even though it's just smoldering there. He'll use suffering in our lives for a purpose, but not just to destroy. And it takes a lot of faith in God to say, I'm going through a hardship right now, but God is not giving all his wrath to me. It takes a lot of faith to say, I'm going through difficulty situation that I don't understand, economically, health-wise, marital, whatever it is, to say, I'm going through a situation that I don't understand, but I know that God does not put out a smoldering wick. He's compassionate. And for those he loves, he's merciful and gracious. God uses suffering to turn us to him. And you say, well, <laughs> I'm already looking at him. If the standard is to be like Christ, we're far from it. God uses pain and suffering in our life to turn, him, turn us more towards Him. God does not forget you in your difficult situation. He does not abandon you. He does not leave you there and say, oh man, I forgot. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't burn toast. I sometimes burn toast. I forget. I walk away. But sometimes you burn food because you step away. God doesn't do that. He doesn't forget that you're there. He knows that you're going through a difficult situation. He uses it for our salvation. Now, the last part that I want to look at is verses 23 through 28, and that God uses false Christ. God uses false Christ. And we see that in verse 23. It says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, 
here is the Christ, or there he is. You do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise. Uh, Christ is the one who is anointed by God. It's the person who is going to be the ruler. It's the anointed one. The prophets are the ones who speak for God. But both of these will be false. Their, uh, their point will be not to guide people towards God. Their emphasis will have people focus on them. Uh, they'll be teaching wrong things. Rather than pointing people to God, they'll be pointing people to their own teachings. Rather than learning more about God and learning more about His Word, and they'll, they'll point people to what they think and, and their opinions and their thoughts. And, and therefore, because they'll have a wrong teaching, they'll have a wrong practice. Uh, they'll, um, they'll focus on loving one another without loving God. They'll be more worried about offending people rather than doing what is right before God. And, and that's what these people, they'll come up. And it says that they will be... Uh, it says, uh, they'll show great signs and wonders. Now, can you imagine this time, all these calamities happening, and here comes somebody that's offering great signs and wonders? That, that would be fantastic. And, and there would be the temptation to maybe put your faith in the person who's doing the great signs and wonder rather than in the God who has revealed himself. That will be the temptation. And, and the temptation will be that maybe I should put my faith in this person and what they're saying, rather than in God. Our hearts will end up distrusting God's word. We'll fool ourselves into following them. This is what he's saying. People will flock to them, and they will be pulling people out. Now, it doesn't matter how good a false Christ or how good a false prophet sounds. It really doesn't. Because at the end of the day, you have a false hope. It, they can go on and elaborate and say all these things and entertain and do whatever, do all types of signs, but at the end of the day, a false Christ and a false prophet offers a false hope. But maybe we can trust them. No. Uh, in Judges chapter 2, you see Israel put their hope in two different idols. They thought that they could have prosperity if they followed these two idols. But at the end of the day, those idols couldn't produce anything for them. The true Christ produces a true hope. And it's putting your hope in Christ that actually brings hope and eternal life. I hope that all of you have at one day recognized that you were dead in your trespasses of sin. That there was not a thing in the world that you could do to get one step closer to God. That your sin totally separated you from God. But you also realize that Christ came and died for you. And you put your faith, your hope, everything, your belief in his work, that he died on the cross for you. He was buried. He rose from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father. That brings true hope. It brings eternal life. And I hope that you have put your hope not in something false, but in Christ. And to get to know God through Jesus Christ. As we've seen today, Christians must stop finding hope in false Christ. But this guy says something really great. He does these miraculous signs. He, does, he offers hope. Look to Christ. Look to God. Trust God who is sovereignly using pain and suffering 
to make us ready for Christ. How does he do that? I don't know. You remember in the book of Jonah? Somehow he used one storm to cause the sailors to turn to him, and it caused Jonah to repent and obey him. One storm fulfilled all those purposes. How does God use suffering in your life? I have no idea. But he uses it for his glory and for your good, to take us to be more and more like Christ. God uses rebellion, God uses suffering, and God uses false Christ. I hope that today your hope is in the true Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray now as we're about to go into this time of invitation and we're considering things, maybe to consider where our hope is. Father, this passage seems rather negative and, and uh, sad and depressing. But Father, we know that you are working your perfect plan out. You have been. I pray that our hope and our trust will be in you. Father, if there's someone here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us that we will put our hope in you, that rather than turning to other strategies or anything like that, our hope will be in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me? We'll sing the song of invitation.